Hi. Welcome to The Kicker, the first of what will be a weekly podcast from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Kyle Pope, the editor and publisher. We're glad to have you with us. Um, over these next few weeks, we're going to explore what we're interested in journalism, what's important, what people are talking about. And we're going to be guided um, in these discussions by Dave Uberti, who's um, one of our senior reporters and a Delacorte fellow at CJR. Hello, David. Hey, Kyle. Well, everyone, yeah, it's been uh, quite a week. Uh, I'm sure all of us are still adjusting to the post-election world, and we will be here to talk you through it to figure out what's next for journalism. Uh, Our other guest today is Nausicaa Renner. She's an associate editor for CJR and the Tao Center for Digital Journalism. Hello, Nausicaa. Hi. All right. So first off, I mean, we've had sort of a week and a half now to begin processing what exactly happened over the course of the campaign, what journalism got right, what journalism got wrong. Kyle, the day after the election last week, you penned a column where you sort of chastise a lot of the campaign coverage for very good reason. And you used a phrase in describing it, which was very pessimistic, but I think important for all of us to sit and think about a little bit. And you described this campaign and journalism's role as an anti-Watergate moment. Uh, And I guess I'm curious for you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I was struck immediately, and my thoughts on this haven't really changed, that this was a massive miss on the part of journalism. And it wasn't that um, it wasn't that there wasn't great reporting on Trump, because there was. I think the, the story that was missed, unfortunately, is the only story that really matters in an election, which is about the electorate and who are, who are the voters, what is driving them, um, why are they doing what they are doing. And the breadth of the Trump victory and the depth of the um, resentment and, frankly, racism and um, economic fear, I don't think was really appreciated. Um, I certainly didn't get it from what I read. So what I started to do was just think about how did this happen? How did we as a profession miss what was happening with with these people? And what can we do about it going forward? I think and, and I think the, what I found, or at least what I decided, was that <clears throat> there were some really fundamental um, missteps made by journalists covering Trump. Um, I think there was a decision made in a, in, a, in a lot of newsrooms and certainly inside the heads of a lot of journalists that because of Trump's crazy views um, and his outlier status as a politician, um, he couldn't be covered like a normal politician, which is, I guess, fair enough. But then it went one step further, I think, which was people became just personally invested in the fact that he was bad for the job or bad for America or bad for democracy. And it clouded their ability to listen to what people were saying. Um, and I think that's a fundamental failure of journalism. I mean, I've been I spent a little bit of my time as a foreign correspondent in conflict zones and interviewing people who I had a lot of personal disgust for. Um, but I learned that you have to sort of put that aside and you have to listen to people and you have to try to understand what they're saying. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't really even mean you have to empathize that much with them. But you certainly have to understand where they're coming from. And that didn't happen. And I think that was a big failure. So um, – And I think the other issue is that we got really tied up in a lot of commentary and opinion and analysis and not nearly enough reporting, um, which has a lot of roots having to do with 
the decimation of local news in the country and the demands of social media, which reward stories that are sexy but maybe not as nuanced. I actually am optimistic about what this means for our profession in the sense of there's a, there is a lot of soul-searching going on, maybe some navel-gazing too. But I think we could end up coming out of this sort of having made some smart decisions about how to move forward. You know, I just say that I think uh, a lot of this stuff was, you know, bubbling under the surface for a long time now. And I think in many ways, sort of the Trump phenomenon is sort of an interesting way to view sort of the public's uh, reaction to journalistic practices and some of our biases and failures. Uh, I think a lot of uh, sort of the public distrust for journalism has, has finally sort of shown through into this larger political movement. Uh, and, and now it's presented presented itself to us and we have to do a lot of Soul searching. So there has there has been a lot of discussion of where to go forward from here over the last week, uh, and there's no right or wrong answers at this point. But I'm curious, Nausicaa, from your perspective, what have you found most persuasive in terms of what we should do differently, or more of, or less of in the future? Yeah, I think the most compelling arguments that I've seen have come from. I'm sure other people have said this as well, but John Herman at the New York Times, who's done some great reporting this season. And um, Daniel Allen, who's a Harvard professor, they've both made the argument that part of the problem is that that news organizations haven't done enough in order to meet their readers where they are and to provide information in a way that is digestible to middle America um, and that basically there needs to be a lot more experimentation going on in terms of um, delivering news on mobile and and that sort of thing. And I, I find that super compelling as a reason. Yeah, and I think there's something, something to be said about reader engagement as well. Uh, you know, I'm taking a, a little bit of a leap here, but I think, that, you know, journalists have almost a universal disdain for comment sections. And I, for one, and some other journalists have also made the joke that Donald Trump in some ways personifies a comment section. Uh, I think there's there's something to be said regarding us sort of connecting with the readers who may mistrust us and may voice that mistrust a little bit more forcefully than others. Uh, but Kyle, I want to throw it to you in another development that's you know sort of taken shape over the last week or so, which is that subscriptions uh, to uh, newspapers and magazines, along with donations to some nonprofit news organizations, have really sort of exploded in terms of the rate of them coming in. The New York Times has added 41,000 new subscriptions since the election. The New Yorker added 10,000 new subscriptions in the three days after the election. Uh, what, do you th- what do you think that says about you know, what the public thinks of us, what they want out of us, and how, more importantly, can we keep those people uh, trusting us? Well, first off, you should go to CGR.org and, and become a member at $50 a year. Um, and actually, in all honesty, our, our traffic is also like going through the roof. I mean, people are really responding to this stuff. Um, I mean, what I, f- I think this is great, and I actually love the fact that a lot of journalists are on Twitter talking about how they've re-upped their subscription to competing news organizations. So you'll see Washington Post reporters talking about how they've you know, they re-up their New York Times subscriptions and vice versa. I mean, I do fear that, though, that this is, you know, that this is the kind of, I don't know, the analog version of the filter bubble where people who agree with this stuff are kind of re-engaging the stuff that they agree with. Um, I mean, it probably would be more healthy if, um, you know, all those New York Times subscribers, I don't know, 
subscribe to the Wall Street Journal or to the National Review or whoever. Um, but you know, it's only good. I mean, I, and I think the underlying point here is that we're entering an administration where um, where this is going to be a real battle, and where and you know, fighting and reporting on an administration that is openly and blatantly and even proudly hostile to the press takes a lot of resources. I mean, there's going to be a lot of legal bills. I mean, even if you take something simple like, you know, the fact that Trump so far hasn't used a pool, a press pool, so we can track where he is and what he's doing, what that means is you just need a lot more resources to cover the president because instead of having one reporter in the pool, you got to have five reporters stationed around town who, just in case he happens to be going in that direction. I mean, that is what the Washington Post did when they were blacklisted by the Trump campaign. They they had reporters spread out everywhere in just to try to sort of increase their reach. All this is going to require a lot more money. Um, so, you know, this is all part of this reckoning that news organizations are having right now that, you know, it's a new game where we just have to sort of hunker down and know that we're in a kind of oppositional moment now. Um, and it's just going to take money. But I think it's, I think it's all for the good. What all this points to is um, there's been a there's a real dearth of um, ways for people to participate uh, civically in this nation. And the fact that we basically forget about politics, you know, until the election rolls around. Um, I think after the election, what I've seen, at least among people that I know, among, you know, friends and people in the press, is that people are really itching for a way to be involved. And I think that probably the the growth in subscriptions and donations is is part of that. It's it's people, you know, taking the opportunity that they see. And I think that we need to provide them with more ways of, of participating. Yeah, you're here. Kyle, you mentioned the uh, press pool and Donald Trump uh, sort of shirking this norm. And it, it brought me into this our next topic, which I wanted to get into, which is that it's been a, a week, a week and a half now, and, and Donald Trump's uh, transition team has not had a protective press pool. Now, this basically ensures that a team of journalists are able to follow the president-elect and eventually the president uh, through his day-to-day schedule. Um, Obviously, worst case scenario during a national security emergency, this would allow journalists to have access and transmit information to the public. But in a more mundane sense, uh, it ensures that there is a you know independent historical record of events uh, for the president's day. Uh, a lot of journalists on social media and through direct you know outreach to the administration have really protested. Uh, loudly that Trump has shirked this norm, but he has no legal obligation to follow it. You know, Kyle, how worried should we be about this? Um, it seems like a little little bit difficult thing to understand for people in the public, but journalists, and particularly White House reporters, are apoplectic in some senses. I'm outraged on a micro level, and on a macro level, I think we've got bigger fish to fry. Um, I just... I, I think this is going to be a cat and mouse game, and I think there's a danger of, of. Um, I mean, I think Trump already has, and and he's been expert at using the press as a foil for himself and as a kind of way to sort of rally his supporters, you know, anger and and interest and whatever. And the press has played right into it, and I think there's a danger here of of being perceived as being whiny and and. 
you know, I was struck by um, a comment by somebody who covers sports who was who who said something on social media to, to the effect of like, you know, dear White House press corps, you should try to cover a sports team once in a while, which is completely blocks you at every turn, and you just have to figure out a way around it. I understand the concerns here and the precedent here and why it's important to have this kind of access. Um, but on the other hand, I don't actually think that um, the complaints are going to do much good. And I think we just sort of have to come up with a plan B. But I'm, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, I tend to agree with you in that we have bigger fish to fry. I also think that we've done a pretty poor job of explaining exactly why we feel this is such an important norm to uphold. Yeah, just, to, yeah, I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt, but there was, I, I thought that the, I heard a Trump person yesterday on TV was just playing this perfectly. They basically said, so are you saying that the Trump, Mr. Trump should not be allowed to have dinner with his family without a reporter like looking to see, you know, what right. he ordered on the menu? Right, exactly. Which is, of course, is not the issue. But that, you know, it's a very savvy retort. And I think that's something that we have to be um, thoughtful of. Right. And I think, uh, you know, the longer term worry is that this is just going to be the first domino to fall, right? And I, I wanted to bring up a, another point uh, to throw to Nausicaa is that a lot of people on the left, critics on the left, and I'm thinking namely of Brian Boitler at The New Republic, has basically argued that journalists should be, in a sense, activists for democracy. We should really try to go out of our way to explain political norms, uh, why they are important, and why we cannot have, uh, we cannot stand for Donald Trump breaking these political norms. Um, you know, I'm sort of wishy-washy on this. I see, you know, I definitely see the point, but I also see potential downsides in terms of, you know, when you explain these things poorly and what that could do for public trust in terms of, you know, setting yourself up as being an oppositional force. Nasca, what do you sort of make of that broader argument, journalists as activists for democratic norms? I think that journalists in their very job, good journalism is inherently crucial to democracy. You couldn't have democracy without good journalism. And in that sense, journalists doing their job well is always activism for democracy. Um, what it means to do it well in this context, if it means to focus on the press pool, I, I don't know. What do you see as the downsides? I mean, uh, essentially, like Kyle said, this is an easy thing for Trump pro-Trump people to play. I mean, they have they have sort of strategically and methodically sort of portrayed the press as, as this oppositional force throughout the campaign. And I think in some ways doing this opens them up to more of that. You know, whether we should care about sort of opening ourselves up to that is a different question entirely. Maybe we think that the importance of doing this is certainly outweighs any potential downsides. But that's something we have to grapple with, I think, going forward. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see journalists recognize how intentional it is on the part of the Trump campaign um, that they would bait journalists this way and try to distort what good journalism really looks like. And I think that the press needs to understand, you know, and start explaining itself and saying, no, this is why the press pool is necessary. It's not because we want to spy on him having dinner with his family. It's because we need to set the new normal as um, as something where the press has an active involvement in in how the campaign is or in how the uh, presidency is portrayed. Right. Right, definitely. Seriously, though, I would have liked to see what he ordered off the menu. Um, going toward our next... I, I don't think he's like a tofu guy. <laughs> All right, well, moving on to other existential questions. One of the other hot topics this week has been Facebook and fake news. I think the discussion around this has certainly been elevated uh, since the election. 
Nausicaa, you write a lot and edit a lot about Facebook, social media, the way people use those uh, services and how it impacts journalism. Tell us how we got to this point. Tell us what's going on with Facebook. Yeah, I think this past week has been a a perfect storm for Facebook. I mean, before the election, we saw a lot on... um, you know, the filter bubble and whether or not that was contributing to the election. The Wall Street Journal still has um, a site up called Red Feed, Blue Feed, which I would recommend going on just so you can see how different um, feeds can look. Um, but then after the election, the the focus really shifted toward fake news. And yesterday, Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed um, published a big story on how fake news actually generates generated more engagement um, just before the election than real news did the top 20 stories. Um, and, you know, there's there's been a real backlash against this. I think partially it's that um, Mark Zuckerberg has denied it. He said it's a pretty crazy idea and that Facebook sort of elevates uh, a lot of voices that were that were never heard before. So it's crazy to say that it limits people's um, exposure to viewpoints. Um, the question, is, the que- the big question right now is how are we going to get past this? And a lot of people, I mean, Jim Rutenberg um, has pointed toward, you know, we need to like flood everybody with good journalism. And a lot of people are pointing toward verification as a way to do that. Um, there's a funny little app now that will like basically pop up over your screen if you click on like a fake news site and let you know that it might not be real. Um, I actually agree with Facebook that it is a, you know, truth and verification are really thorny issues as as we've pointed out in the office. Like, what is Andy Borowitz? What is The Onion? Like, how do you filter out satire? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of complicated issues. And I think verification while it's definitely a big part of it, um, is not necessarily the answer. The answer has to do with, um, you know, Facebook having human intervention in terms of, like, what things rise to the top of the algorithm. They, like, recently fired all the people that work on their trending stories. And and without that kind of, uh, you know, without humans looking at it and contextualizing it, you just, there's no way that an algorithm is going to do a good job, like, rising the cream. Right. I think, it, you know, it's got to be like some combination of things, right? It's got to be Facebook taking more responsibility for its actions. It has to be sort of news organizations selling themselves as, you know, we, ha- we are organizations that, you know, stand by journalistic norms of verification uh, and true information. But then it also has to be, you know, on the part of news consumers, take a little bit more care, I would argue, in sort of what information we look at and how we go about sharing that. I think that, I think it's sort of, you know, incumbent upon all of us to change sort of how we view these issues and think long and hard about sort of the, you know, bigger ramifications of them. I wonder if there's a way, you know, you know how if you have a lot of Twitter followers, you can be verified. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I actually look at that once in a while if I see somebody with a lot. I wonder instead of instead of penalizing the people that we think might be fake news people, whether there's something that legitimate news organizations can do to sort of get a, you know, a gold star or something um, that would differentiate them that way. Yeah, there is verification on Facebook as well. Um, I'm not totally versed in in how it works or how they choose certain news sites over others to get that and and how that plays into the algorithm. I mean, part of this is that nobody knows what's Mm -hmm. going on in the algorithm. I mean, did Facebook influence the election? Almost certainly, but 
it's also that this is the inevitable end of um, news organizations throwing all of their content at Facebook for the past like five years and also throwing all of their, you talked earlier about comment sections, like throwing all of their comments, all of their reader engagement. Facebook has all of their audience data and we just don't know what they do with it. I have a question about this. Does anybody have a sense of how much this story, this concern about fake news is resonating outside of the journalism community? Is this something that Facebook readers just sort of say, well, whatever, it's part of the whole stew, and I'm, I kind of take it as with a grain of salt, but I don't get too exercised about it. It's a great question. I've, I really have no idea. I haven't seen any reporting on that. But I, I mean, I will say, and this has sort of pissed me off a little bit in the last couple of days, I feel like journalists have really gone after this story, really promoted the fact that Facebook has, you know, enabled fake news to travel through its algorithm and up in its newsfeed. And I feel like in some ways, it's almost scapegoating Facebook, like, oh, you know, we screwed up the election. But also, there's like all this fake news traveling on Facebook. So like, you know, our, you know, impact was limited in some sense. Well, and I mean, it's not, it's probably no coincidence that uh, the, the jur- you know, journalists are swarming around this at a time when they just screwed up massively right. on mass. Right. So we're, so it's a time to say, yeah, we screwed up, but look at these other people. They really, really screwed up. <laughs> right. It also points to the fact that journalists don't know how to do something differently without Facebook changing. Like they're desperate for ways to, to change the system and this this has provided an opportunity for journalists to really go at Facebook that they didn't have before. Right. How have you guys uh, used Facebook differently this election? I know I've uh, unfollowed many family members. I'm definitely part of the problem. I I went the other way. I mean, really? I, I, yeah, I have a couple a couple of uh, crazy relatives, and everybody's got one. Everybody I know. Right. Everybody has this. Like I've got an uncle, and I've got a bunch of those people. Um, but I appreciated them. I mean, in in a couple of the posts were so, to me, so bizarre and so, like, outside of my realm of life that I actually found them interesting. Like, wow. I remember, I remember there was a specific example of after the debate with Lester Holt, um, there was a video circulating, circulating around of Hillary Clinton, and it spliced together at times where she would, you know, scratch her face or touch her hair and... And it was they were trying to correlate those as secret signals to Lester to change the subject. So they would show her touching her hair, and then they would show Lester changing the subject. And, and they were saying, see, this is like it's cahoots between Hillary and the media. She was signaling him in this secret code to make these changes. And it was actually a quite, quite impressively produced video. But I, and, I, and I found it totally riveting. Um, I didn't believe a second of it, but I found it totally riveting. And I just thought, you know, I never would have seen that if I hadn't, if I had, if I had unfriended those people. Yeah. I just find it so interesting how the table. Did you, have anybody turned. else see that? I did see that. Yes. Yeah. There was also one of, of Hillary falling down when she had pneumonia, yeah. where there were a lot of arrows pointing to various mysterious right. objects. Right. In or frame. the Pope endorsing <laughs> Donald Trump. Right. right. Exactly. Another Over a million one. chairs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's just the, the tables have turned so strongly from like August when Trump was claiming that everything was rigged against him and that, you know, even social media was part of it. And then after the election now, you know, Trump can't claim that it was all rigged against him. And that's sort of what journalists are claiming. Right. And I think this, you know, this gets to a broader question, too, in all seriousness. I mean, I think 
we're entering like the Twilight Zone in some senses. We have like Alex Jones, he of Infowars fame, who is launching a fake news analysis program now. Uh, we're, we're entering this period where fake news is a thing, and this is going to be a war that we are going to need to fight going forward uh, on all fronts. Or and, not. Or not. <laughs> or, or, we could, or, we could just, you know. or we could just do our thing and make it Facebook's problem. But don't you think that's... Is that what you think we should do? Don't you think that's inherently part of our mission to ensure an honest debate, fact-based debate? I, I mean, I, I have no influence over what Facebook does. Really? No. <laughs> um, and I actually don't know a single person who does. Well... And, and I mean, what, you know, the argument, I think, is that um, enough public outcry and enough of their users sort of saying this is unacceptable. But this gets back to that question I asked is... Is there any evidence that users are that exercised about this? Um, I think as journalists, you know, I mean, it, this reminds me, I'm old, but I'm not that old, but it does remind me of the sort of penny press days where you had people in the streets of Manhattan handing out pamphlets of, like, BS, and but they were sort of political um, crusading things, and, you know, some of it was true, some of it wasn't true, and whatever. It was all a kind of, like, cacophony of ideas. The Tony Alamo pamphlets. Or yeah. Whatever. So you could, you know, it, you could choose to ignore them, or you could read them. It was totally up to you. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that this is that different. I mean, I think that one thing is that Facebook has, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has said again and again that and they've changed the algorithm to do this, that people, um, Facebook is a service for people to see what they want to see. And so I think, you know, figuring out, I would like to see reporting on that to figure out whether or not um, Facebook users are, are troubled by this at all. Dave, you think I'm too um, sanguine about this? Well, I certainly agree that, you know, fake news has been around forever. And I think Jack Schaefer wrote a good column about this at Politico. But I think the way in which it's transmitted with regard to Facebook in particular is unlike anything we've ever seen before, just the velocity and the scale uh, that some of this bad information yeah. uh, can travel is, uh, is pretty frightening in some senses. And it really, really dwarfs anything that we could possibly imagine from like a news organization. I think the, one of the issues that one of the reasons that this is so fraught is that it, it involves, you know, extremely important issues having to do with the White House and the presidency. I mean, I remember a debate now, a couple of decades ago about the early reality TV shows. I mean, like Jerry Springer, where you'd have somebody come up and talk about, you know, how they had fathered a child with somebody who wasn't their wife. And, and, and there would be this big fight. And, and we later learned that it was all made up, right? That, the, that this was a storyline that, that they had sort of had a script to, and that, but that it was being sold as a real thing. And people were like outraged. Until they realize, well, wait a second, this is like a syndicated daytime TV show. Like, how outraged do we need to be? Um, the difference here, of course, is that these are incredibly weighty issues, and these are really in incredibly important issues to the future of the country. But, um, you know, at some point, people do have to sort of – at some point, the, the burden is on the reader to make a sort of informed, smart choice about whether this is – legitimate or not, if it's something that they want to believe or something that they don't want to believe, and they have to make that choice themselves. Right. Well, on that note, uh, we will cut it off. I just want to thank my colleagues here, uh, Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of Columbia Journalism Review. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks. And Nausicaa Renner, associate editor of CGR. Thanks, Nausicaa. Thank you. And I'm Dave Uberti, uh, staff writer for CGR. We will see you next week.